Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. I thought that his dark materials referred to the actual instruments, the titular instruments, the golden compass, the spyglass, and the knife. But no, that's completely wrong. I don't know why I ever thought that. Because it's obvious, it obviously refers to the dust and, and the specters and those things. Yeah, it wasn't a bad thought. I was fooled by the pictures. I just looked at the pictures. I didn't read the words. <laughs> that's that's fine, Stephen. It's good to, uh, you know, humble, humble yourself occasionally. Yeah, d- I definitely need that. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome to another Phantology podcast. This is Stephen, and I have Josh with me today. And today is an exciting episode because we are attempting our first ever Phantology video podcast. Yeah, so we have our, we're on the Zoom bandwagon. We've actually been doing Zoom since before this whole quarantine started, but we figured we'd try and record one of these videos as well. That's right. And if you're watching, you'll see that my computer has the sufficient amount of cores to display a cool, trendy amber spyglass background. But Josh, unfortunately, just has a blank white wall behind him. Unfortunate, but <laughs> we do what we can with our resources here at Phantology. So we are going to be reviewing The Ember Spyglass by Philip Pullman, as you might have gathered, book three of His Dark Materials. And before we get started, let me just mention, if you like the content we're putting out, check us out at Phantology Books on our website, www.phantologybooks.com. And if you want to talk to us more, you can find us on Discord. Our Discord invite is on our website or on our Twitter, or just ask us for it. And you can also support us on Patreon, right, Josh? Yeah, if you want to pitch in to get me a computer with enough cores to record video calls with a cool background, support us on Patreon. That seems like a big-time stretch goal. We'll see if we ever get there. <laughs> no, that definitely will not be what <laughs> our first donations go to. They will likely go to paying our hosting fee on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got to pay that Podbean hosting fee. So another exciting thing is we, yesterday, last night, recorded a podcast with the Black Tower podcast. They're a Wheel of Time only podcast and uh, that was jake and i jake's our wheel of time expert we had a great time on there so look forward to that podcast probably coming out on their channel in about a week or so that was really fun they've kind of got a different flavor on their podcast but uh, that was a really good time talking just fantasy books in general wheel of time kind of put up like a mount rushmore of fantasy authors so i know josh you were not a part of it so you must be excited to listen right yeah i'm actually very excited I honestly get excited about our uh, episodes that I'm not a part of when they come out too. Like you guys did the Harry Potter episode. I was I was itching to listen to that one when it came out. Yeah, it makes sense as I'm sure many, many fans were, right? <laughs> of course. Okay, so let's talk book three, The Amber Spyglass. So I just finished this book. Josh, you read it a while ago, maybe a couple months ago, right? So maybe not top of mind for you, but but fairly recent. And I have a bit of a mixed opinion. I'll just say, on the book. And I think you were maybe a little bit more positive, right? Yeah. I think I, I came away, I think that the third book was my favorite in the books when I finished reading it. And I don't know if that's just because we actually got some conclusions and got some character arcs finally finished. But I came away pretty positive from the series. Okay, so we'll probably have some differing opinions. I wasn't completely negative, but I was a bit up and down. I felt like the first book was the strongest. The second book was still fairly strong. And the third book was good, and I was liking it, and I was liking it, and it was going on and on, and then the end happened, and I was like, that's it? it? It's over? That was the resolution? 
And so that was that was a bit of a letdown, and that's where my opinion is going to differ from yours. Okay. Well, I'm happy. I'm I'm excited to get into it when we start going over spoilers. Yeah. So before we get into spoilers, I'm assuming if you're listening, you've probably read the first two books, so you know the gist of the series. But this is a YA series, I guess. It's written for all ages, really. Kind of like a almost like how Harry Potter and C.S. Lewis books are accessible by all ages, but really have some more adult themes. And when I say adult themes, I don't mean like content heavy. I just mean more deep thinking, really, uh, really cerebral aspects to the book, right? Yeah, we've talked about that a lot before on here. And I completely stand by everything we've said. There's some pretty heavy themes. There's a lot of deep content if you want to wade into those waters. And there's just as much as you as far as you really want to go, you can go there with this series. And there's a lot of not just about religion, but there's a lot of commentary on culture, on how we see children, how we see growing up and adolescence, and also how we see religion and how religion affects the world that we live in. It has different philosophies on on God and and creation and all these things. Right. And the series is somewhat infamous for being like the anti-Narnia book, right? It's been called the response to C.S. Lewis and Philip Pullman is an atheist. So it's no surprise that that label has really stuck in the majority of, of Christian areas such as America where we're from. So I know it's been, I think it's been put on like banned book lists and it's it's really had a bad rap. And going into the series, I knew that. And I was kind of thinking that I needed to be a bit wary of that. But honestly, after completion of the series, I feel like that is a bit of an exaggeration. Like there were definitely, I mean, don't get me wrong. This was definitely part of the series, but it wasn't something that really put a sour taste on my mouth. And I grew up a Christian with, with really strong uh, Christian morals and beliefs and biblical values. And, and so even with that upbringing, I wasn't necessarily turned off in the series. It's really just kind of a different way of thinking and it's not like it changed, it fundamentally changed anything for me, but it did kind of, you know, at least expose me to some different ideas and, and make me re-examine some, some long-held beliefs, which I think is not a bad thing, right? No, I think that the more that you can re-examine what you believe and why you believe it and what positive aspects it brings to your life, then that's all good. Really, as we were watching the season one of the show, my wife and I were watching it, we had a lot of discussions about how the different themes in the show, how they relate to our belief system and what of those themes we were taught as kids and how we wanted to raise our kids. It was very enlightening when we were watching it and discussing it as a couple. I really enjoyed it. And so having said all that, I will say towards the end of the book, I thought it got a little heavy handed and we'll talk about this more in the spoilers, but I felt like maybe Narnia did it better and not just saying in terms of like which religious belief system you fall under. But just in the way that it was incorporated into the story and the subtlety, if you will, of the messaging. Yeah, the, there could have been some more subtle knife usage for writing this this book. It, it was very on, on the nose. And uh, even with like uh, the global warming thing, this is kind of light spoilers, but like the bears started migrating south because their ice caps were melting because of the experiments that Lord Azrael was doing. Right. I think we kind of touched on this in the subtle knife review. And he totally doubled down on it in the in the third book. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you were talking about that. I was like, oh, Steven's not going to yeah. like that. And it was a completely, it was not necessary. It was not part of the plot. It seemed to be something where he was just saying like, oh, I, I believe in global warming. I'm assuming he does. I, I really have no idea. 
based on anything he said, but just reading the books, it seems like he's a big climate change guy. I'm not saying I'm not. I'm just saying his view, his worldview very much comes to bear in the books. So you have to be aware of that. Look, this is not going to be a book that like a super fundamentalist Christian that like believes that global warming is a hoax. Not that there's a perfect uh, symmetry there, but just that has these super fundamental beliefs. This might not be the book series that they're going to enjoy. I don't think that they should not read it because I think that it might help them get some perspective, but I think that uh, they might not enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's very important to have an open mind. And maybe that's why people were a little wary of this as a YA series, because they think, oh my gosh, my child is growing up reading this, and they're being exposed to these beliefs, and this is not what I want them to to grow up with. So I would say if you're having your kid read the series, read it along with them or discuss what they're reading. Maybe Maybe it's not the greatest series to just let them read and incorporate directly into their belief system, because it basically is like Philip Pullman doctrine at some points. And so I would say be a little wary of what they're reading, but it doesn't need to be something that kids can't read. Yeah, and I can definitely see if like there's a 10-year-old that's reading this in school and then they're having their teacher reinforce that God is weak and and hates his children and the religion is going to be causing the destruction of the world and they're having their teacher say that and they're they're reading this book that's saying that like there's obviously a reason why that would be an issue for parents that have Christian values. But they should read their these books with their kids and have these discussions with their kids and say, how does this fit into your belief system? What does it challenge? Just all the things we've talked about. Good parents should be able to do that with their kids and help th- have this be something that helps the children grow. Absolutely. Okay, so that's a little spoiler-free kind of primer for the book. If you're unfamiliar with the series or if you have not yet read this book and don't want to be spoiled, uh, don't want to be spoiled, now would be the time to stop reading. We are going to start going through plot elements I'm just going to go through the notes that I took. I think that's going to be kind of the format that we follow. From now on, there's been some chatter on the Discord saying they want more of key plot elements, discussed big moments, let's talk about them. So that's what I've put down, and we'll just kind of walk through that, Josh, and just kind of bear with me because I think I'm a little more familiar than you are, having just finished it. Of course. So we start the action, and let's just recap maybe the end of book two, which at the end of book two... Remind me what happens. Yeah, so there's a lot that happens at the end of book two. Lyra is taken captive by Miss Coulter, and we have the death of Lee Scoresby. And Will's father comes in and is killed immediately. Yep. yep. Which was a, a low point for us in our review of yep. the previous book. Okay, I'm up to speed now. My okay. boy for a second there. All right. So the action begins as we try to get Lyra back. And there's a lot of scheming. You see Lord Azrael's people talking about the significance of Lyra. You see viewpoints into the church talking about Lyra. You see Will and his new angel friends trying to get Lyra back. And Lyra is hanging out with Mrs. Coulter in a cave in yet another one of these remote worlds. And honestly, this was a little strange to me, just the fact that we seem to be picking up a little bit like in Media Res where... There's obviously been things that have happened since the end of the second book, and Mrs. Coulter has traveled really far with Lyra in a really short amount of time and is, like, way further along than anyone else is, and it seemed a little strange to me that she had had that much of a head start. I don't know, just a little bit of a plot hole that stuck out right away. Fair enough. What did you think about the interaction of Mrs. Coulter with Lyra? What do you think about their mother-daughter, like, enemy relationship? 
Yeah, honestly, this is a little strange to me. This is something that I didn't necessarily love because I liked it more in the first two books when Mrs. Coulter was more of kind of a combative character. Like she had these internal conflicts. She was trying to balance the her her love for Lyra, her understanding that Lyra was her daughter with her mission, so to speak, her mission with the church. And in this book, she seems to have thrown that all away and is all in on I'm going to protect Lyra to the point where she's drugging Lyra and keeping her captive. And it just seemed like she was completely lost and she was a different character than she'd been in the first two books. I didn't really love it. Fair enough. I thought that it did a good job of finally Mrs. Coulter just giving into the fact that she had kind of failed at most other things she had tried to do with life in somewhat spectacular ways at times, but in the end she had failed. And so now she said, well, I'm going to do something right. I'm going to keep my daughter safe. But she was still too prideful to have anyone help her or have Lyra have really any say in the matter. And so it was kind of her, and this might get into some symbolism, but it was Mrs. Coulter taking away Lyra's agency in a lot of ways and keeping her drugged and keeping her safe and keeping her away from the outside world, even though that's not really what Lyra wanted to be doing. Totally see that. I totally agree with that. I guess on my side, I'm thinking I would really like there to be a villain in the story. And that's kind of what your classical stories have. And it seemed like in the first two book, in the first two books that Mrs. Coulter and Lord Israel were somewhat of the villains. Or it seemed like perhaps the authority would have been the villain. And that that was going to come out in the third book. And I was expecting that and I didn't get it. So maybe that's why I was a little put off by the way that Mrs. Coulter decided to act. I can totally see that. Yeah, this book, for sure, we haven't gotten to the end scenes yet or anything, but it started to shy away from the fact that you need a villain driving the plot, and it was more the villain was kind of our status as human beings, right? And and what that status means. I can already tell that you did a much better job of reading the book with symbolism than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's let's keep going through elements of the story, and then we can talk about the, the symbolism more. Yeah, yeah. So. Eventually, they uh, they get Lyra back. Well, there's so, there's a small skirmish, if you will, as the forces of the church and the forces of Lord Israel and Will and Yorick. Yorick is the armored bear, one of my favorite characters, just because he's a cool bear. So so they've met up. Uh, there's kind of this cool scene where Will shows how powerful he is by cutting up Yorick's armor with his knife, and Yorick's like, "Okay, I can't fight. You know, I can't can't do anything about that. I got. I, I need to join you." There is this other random scene where York goes back and devours Lee Scoresby's body. That was interesting. That was something that I definitely pointed out. And I kind of liked it and I kind of didn't. I didn't like it just because of the fact that one of our favorite characters is being eaten is not necessarily something that us as readers can really stomach super well. Um, I mean, I'm reading the Joe Abercrombie books right now, so can't really defend. Go my, on, uh, Steven. Yeah, yeah. I really can't have any issue with a bear eating a person but at the same time it was a little strange but i liked it because it kind of showed that yorick was still a wild animal it's like how in other books you'll have a dragon type character and the dragon is very intelligent but at the same time it's not human and authors show it's not human by showing it like devouring a bunch of people or just eating very large amounts of food or giving into its more bestial natures. And I think this is maybe what Philip Pullman was doing here when he had Yorick eat Lee Scoresby. Still a little weird. A, a little weird. I'm not going to fight you on that. 
and and then the doubling down on climate change happens. We already talked about that. And Will and and Yorick go into the other world, and they all meet up, and they have this little battle, and they get Lyra back, right? Yeah. And so I thought that was pretty cool how Lyra in the end said, no, I'm not going to stay with you, Mom, pretty much, right? I'm going to go with Will. Even in her drugged, kind of stupid state, she still made that decision. What did you think about Will breaking the knife when he saw Mrs. Coulter like that? Yes. So this was a little confusing to me. And I'm hoping since you obviously read with more symbolism, you may be able to explain what happened here. But Will's knife breaks, the subtle knife breaks. And the way that I understood it from the reading the book was Will was about to use it. And then he thought of his mother. And that's why it broke because there is another part later in the book where again, it like almost breaks, but he's able to pull back from thinking about his mom. And is that how you read it? Is that the reason why it broke? Yeah, I think he got kind of distracted by thinking about his mom. And so it distracted him from using it. So is there any symbolism there? Or is that just the explanation for how the knife works? I think that's just kind of the explanation is you have to be extremely focused on what you're doing. And he he lost his focus kind of mid cut. You know, okay. it's kind of like, yeah, if yeah. If, I don't know if you're cutting something and then you turn away and lose focus, then you can cut yourself or break yeah. your knife or whatever. Yeah, fair enough. I think the majority of the magic, if you will, I mean, call it whatever you want, but it is magic. The magic in the book kind of revolves around the, the necessities of the plot. And a lot of the symbolism kind of goes into how the magic works. So I guess we'll just accept that. Yeah. And I could very well be wrong. If, if you're a big His Dark Materials fan, jump on Discord and tell us why we're wrong. What I did think was cool about that scene was how Mrs. Coulter reminded Will of his mom and how it shows how these characters, even though they're doing adult things, are still kids. And even just the aspect of here's a mother and a daughter really pulled on Will's heartstrings and reminded him of his mother. Yeah, they're definitely still kids. They've grown up pretty quickly over in reading this is a pretty short amount of time. There's no... Uh, There's no time gap between any of these books. It's just one event after another. But I guess we just kind of have to read between the lines and say they've grown up maybe like years faster than they otherwise would have. Yeah, I think that's fair. I did notice that the knife broke into seven pieces. Seven, obviously, a very important number in most religions. So there's that. I don't necessarily know what symbolism it is, but... uh, I don't either. I didn't catch that. Yep, it it happened. Sure, it's something. And yeah, tell us what that is on Discord, listeners. So they repair the knife afterwards. Yorick is able to repair it. He mentions that there is a significant comment where Yorick says, like, look, I'll repair this. But you realize that this knife does more than you think it does. And Will's like, eh, whatever. We just got it. I need it. So repair it. Make it work. But that is going to be important later on. A large amount of foreshadowing right there. How did they convince Yorick to do it? Did they just ask the lithiometer? Was that what happened? Yeah, it was probably an alethiometer decision. I don't remember the exact details of, of how that went down, but Yorick will basically do anything for Lyra. So I don't know, maybe Lyra asked the alethiometer and then she asked Yorick and they made some yeah. kind of deal or something. I think it was something like that. So that happened. And obviously important because now they have the knife back and they can travel to different worlds. And the world they are going to travel to is the world of the dead. My prediction was that you were not going to like this part, but I really like this part. Correct. I didn't really <laughs> like the, this part. Yeah, and I think having... Having heard my reviews of other series, that's probably not going to surprise you. So, correct prediction. Yeah, you you don't like the random tangent dives into other I settings. I don't. I don't. I like everything to be significant to the major conflict, and it, this wasn't. 
Okay, so in defense of this, I really thought it was cool how Philip Pullman was able to um, establish this whole new setting. And I, for whatever reason, I was super engaged with this whole World of the Dead mission to get Roger back. And maybe that's just because I thought that there might be like some some more reason why Roger was specific to the story. And maybe I thought maybe it might be bringing Roger back into the story a little bit. But I was invested in it, and I really liked it. So having said that I didn't necessarily like it, I did think it was done very well. The visualization of the world of the dead was really nice. And probably some of the best underworld description that I've heard, the underworld is obviously a big theme throughout literary history. And this was done really well to the point where I was able to visualize it in a slightly different way. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. I thought that getting to the underworld was super relevant as well how they had to it kind of brought all the symbolism of going to the river kind of like the egyptian mythology of going to the river and then getting on the boat through the sticks and then going down the river and how they had to leave their demons that was that was heartbreaking to me yeah this is of course greek mythology i mean every mythology yeah, has. Well, i think i think egyptian mythology with the sticks river right uh no the river sticks is greek mythology oh okay i'm, I'm but dumb. but okay. but every mythology has an underworld obviously and this totally harkened back to that. Yeah, yeah. Greek mythology especially, and maybe that's just because I've read more Greek mythology and I'm more familiar with that. But reading through this and thinking back to the way mythologies work, I was really interested because every mythological legend that has someone going into the underworld, it doesn't end well. The heroes can never actually go into the underworld and take the spirits of the dead that they're trying to take out. It never works out. And so I was thinking, okay, this is going to go the same way. Lyra is super optimistic about her ability to get Will, to get Lee Scoresby, to get Will's father out. She thinks she's going to be able to do it, but she's not. That's what I was thinking. And so I was really shocked when it kind of worked. Well, I think it did more than work. I think it they kind of resolved this whole underlying issue with what was going on and freed, you know, in essence, freed everyone from being in eternal purgatory. Right. So this portion of the book was definitely a smack at the idea of purgatory, right? Like Philip Pullman is basically saying, purgatory sucks. And if you believe in purgatory, you should not you should not be looking forward to that because, look, there's much better ways to end your life than going to purgatory. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that's not our commentary. That's just how I'm interpreting Philip Pullman's explanation of the world of the dead. <laughs> yeah. And Lyra went in there and a little girl went in there and upended all of it. She went in there and allowed all the spirits to escape and to kind of begun, become one with the universe is what I got out of it. Yeah, almost like a Hindu idea of, of rebirth here. Yeah. Or a Wheel of Time idea, if you will. <laughs> well, also a relevant pop culture thing. Did you ever finish The Good Place? Yeah. Okay, so spoilers for the everything about the good place for like the next few minutes but okay. it was kind of this it was kind of the same thing right i mean where they ended up in the good place was better than this kind of pur purgatory place but they still kind of went in and had to eventually join kind of become one with the universe and right right yeah 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 i, I like the end of the good place although i think i like the first season the best and then it kind of tapered off for me a bit towards the end the end got just got a little boring i don't know there's no more action 
Right. No, but I mean how uh, Michael went and became a human again, and then uh, Kristen Bell, Eleanor went through the door and then like showed her dissolving and then her little speck of whatever like dropped on Michael or dropped on the person. Yeah, like it yeah, showed her yeah. becoming one with her and her, her essence influencing the world for good. I, I thought about this when I was watching The Good Place finale. Okay. I hadn't read before I watched The End of The Good Place, so unfortunately I did not have that experience. But yeah, nice pop culture reference. We always like that of ontology. Hopefully somebody's not upset about getting The Good Place spoiled for them. <laughs> hey, you gave enough of a warning. Yeah, hopefully. But uh, okay, so they have gone through the world of the dead. There is kind of a harrowing scene where Lyra almost falls off into the abyss and she's saved by the harpy. The harpy has been redeemed by Lyra. I don't know. That was a little strange to me. Like this being that has for millennia just lived a terrible life and a terrible creature has had Lyra come in and within like a day or so decided that I'm going to completely change my nature. So Lyra has a very powerful, a very powerful effect on people, we'll say. Yeah, that's that's a good point. But that's nothing new to the series. Like all of our main characters, we'll say, have kind of this weird like glamour magic to how they interact with other people to the point where they're able to just get them to do really whatever they want them to do most of the time yeah you're you're right for sure yeah so this kind of harkened back to uh, for me a little bit of like patrick rothfuss like fey magic where it's off screen and you don't necessarily know what's happening and so my theory is there's actually another magic system going on here where i don't know there's like some kind of magic that our heroes are able to tap into Maybe they're using the dust in unexplained ways to influence other people. Doesn't really make sense in reading of the story. But just for my, I guess, like completionist mind, I would like to see everything be tied up nicely with a bow sometimes. And, and this is one way that I, I guess I didn't quite have it. Fair enough. Yeah, hopefully he explains his magic a little bit more in later series. I don't know. I mean, this is kind of our high fantasy nerds wanting to kick in on full blast here yeah it's definitely a little off-brand for us because we typically cover high fantasy this is not that so i've just got to be content with a different genre that's all it yeah. is yeah you're not yeah i agree I, I don't think it makes it less of a bug i think it's okay that it bothers you but i don't think that it should merit less of a rating from you yeah okay so from one side plot to another i think this is a good time to put a pin in the journey that Will and Lyra are going on and go off to Mary. Mary okay. has gone off to this other world with the Mulefa. Mulefa are these kind of cool, like, elephantine creatures. They've got trunks, so they're elephantine in my, in my view. And they are, they've developed to use these wheels. These And the wheels are seeds of these giant trees. So it's this evolutionary thing that's happening in this different world. And Mary becomes a part of it. And she spends a pretty significant portion of the book kind of learning what this other side plot is. And we're never really sure what the significance is, just promised that it will be significant. Josh, at the beginning here, like up until we know what's actually going on, how much did you like this plot? Okay, I liked it less than the journey to the underworld, but I did not mind it. So to, to me, it really reminded me of Speaker for the Dead. And I kind of got Speaker for the Dead, which is a book I like. I kind of got those feels where here's this scientist going and observing the strange, these strange beasts that she doesn't understand, but you kind of know as a reader 
have way more of a culture and an identity than what she sees at first. So I enjoyed it and I was I was all in on it. I liked it more. I liked it more okay. than the and that may be surprising because this is honestly even more of a tangent than the world of the dead thing is. But I love world building in books and in movies, whatever. Like anytime there's a new world being created, I love that. And I think that's why I like Sanderson's books so much is because you can always look forward to that. Uh, like in Interstellar, the parts where they go to that world that's covered with water and the time is different and there's, there's those giant waves and everything. Like I was totally there for that. I, I was so invested in those types of things. And so seeing that, seeing an entirely new world where evolution has gone in a different direction and seeing how it all worked out through this lens of a, of a side character even, I thought it was really interesting. So that's probably why I liked it so much, even though the plot didn't really make any sense at all until much later in the story. Okay, so basically from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like when a main character goes on a side quest, it bugs you. But when a side character goes and does some side quests, it's fine because it's building the world. Yeah, that, maybe, that maybe, that's, maybe that's why. Side characters do side things. Main characters do main things. That's what I'm okay. saying. So it's not like Lyra going and, you know, filling her original mission of trying to save Roger, you know, by going to the underworld. It's not like a, a main thing for you. Yeah, no, that was not a main thing for me because I did not understand why she wanted to do it in the first place. J jumping back into that, Lyra's main purpose in all of these books is saving Roger. So to me, it makes perfect sense that she's going to say, I'm going to take all these this information that I found in book two and use it to go do whatever I can to save Roger. And that's what she did. She went and saved Roger. And that's what she set out from book one to do. And so that's what I appreciated that we got all this uh, character journey to go and complete that. Because if they would have just let Roger be dead, then I think it would have been, I don't know, I, I wouldn't have enjoyed that as much. I agree. I, I like it. I like that explanation. And I didn't really think about that. Maybe because I didn't really care about Roger because he wasn't much of a character for me in the yeah. first book. I mean, that's fair too. If they had made me care about Roger more in the first book, I think I would have been a little more on board with that. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we can move on from that. I guess actually before we talk, before we move past the world of the dead, we should talk about the significance of leaving your demon behind as they okay. go into the world of the dead, right? So they have to yep. leave Pantalaimon on the dock. And this was a scene that I actually predicted coming, if you remember from our uh, from you our did. second book podcast review. I said, I know in the third book there's going to be a moment where Lyra and Pantalaimon become separated. And it's going to be heartbreaking, but it's going to be necessary because it's going to show Lyra growing up. It's going to show some some character growth. And so that's what we saw here. But then interesting that we also saw every other character including Will and the Dragonfly spy people that I don't remember their names. But uh, but those guys were all saying, wow, I feel like I'm separated from my demon as well. And it was interesting because they didn't really have demons in the same way that Lyra did. But there was something significant about going into the world of the dead, right? Yeah, they couldn't bring their demons into the world of the dead. So what did that mean? Did that just mean that like their demon was their soul part of them? And that was something that you couldn't have like the physical and the spiritual realms connected in the world of the dead or what yeah i always have just kind of thought of demons as being like a natural man like where that's like they kind of represent your worldly desires and passions and so when you die that's obviously left behind but that could be way off base but that's what i got from it that makes sense because the people that are in the world of the dead are just complete husks of people they're completely brain dead right 
probably kind of like what we saw from the children that had their demons severed from them in life. That's a good point. Yeah, we saw that in the first book. To the point where there was that one kid who had his demons separated and he just died because he couldn't handle it. Yeah. So maybe that's what death is in the series is being separated from your demon. Yeah, I like it. So, well, there's one other plot line we haven't caught up yet, and that is Mrs. Coulter, because she went off with Lord Azriel, and they're kind of scheming for a while, and you just kind of get, like, their backstory. I felt like this was just in there enough to the point where once the final battle happens, you know where they're coming from, you know a little bit of their plan. So there's a scene where they go to infiltrate the church, and the church has this bomb that they are going to set off to kill Lyra, and they've connected it through... Mrs. Coulter's hair, and this is going to take out Lyra because of the familial connection. And so our heroes, villains, whatever you want to call Mrs. Coulter, and Azriel go off in this super advanced killing machine Death Star thing. It's called the Intention Craft. And they go investigate, they, they go infiltrate the church and take it down. And there's a bit of a, a steampunk, guns blazing, balloon type battle, right? Yeah. That that was part of the book where I wasn't super invested in it. I just kind of imagined it as like a scene from Star Wars or something, like this big fight on the hangar of a, of a plane docking or something, and they're on the side of a cliff somewhere. I, it was a cool visual, but at the same time, I was like, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Yeah, I I think we're aligned on that on this one. And then there was a random scene where Will's father, after joining them as a ghost, says, "Oh, hey, Will. By the way, uh, it's really important that right now." You take your knife and cut off some of Lyra's hair and put it into another world because somehow I know that the church is about to set up a bomb and you need to do this to evade the bomb. What? That was weird to me. Yep, let's just call it that's that's plot armor right there. Yeah, they just say, Oh yeah, Will's father, he's a he's a shaman witch thing. Don't remember the exact term for what kind of magical being he is. But uh, yeah, so he knows. He knows. We're gonna believe him. Yeah. This gets to be a weird series at points, you know? Yeah. It, it does. Yeah. yeah. It's a YA series in this regard, I think. And this is, once again, us saying, we love epic fantasy. This is an epic fantasy, and we've really got to get off our get off our high horses here. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going through the plot. Okay. So we're finally at the final battle. And a few things happen here. So Lyra and Will kind of show up on the action. And Lord Asriel's forces, which, sidebar, how did he get so many forces? Like, who exactly is this guy? How did he get this huge army? This guy is just like a general, man. He does he he can gather followers like like nothing. Again, this is kind of where I go back to my complaint on wanting to know like more yeah. of the magic of our heroes. <laughs> How did, where did he go from he went from a random professor at Oxford in the first book to the leader of the forces that are going to take down God? Like what? Well, I think he's been focused on that for much longer than he's been a professor. I think being a professor was kind of like a stepping stone to learn more about dust so that he could travel between worlds to take down the Almighty. Or not the Almighty, what, what's he called in this? The, the, author- authority. the authority. Yeah, the authority. Yeah, the authority. Yeah. 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 So interesting. And honestly, it wasn't quite clear to me if Lord Ezreal wanted to take down the authority, or did he want to take down Metatron, who is the authority's right-hand man who's kind of like taken over in his advancing age. Yeah, I think both. I don't know. I, I never was clear on if Lord Azrael even knew about that, or if he thought it was just the authority pulling the strings the entire time. He figured out pretty quickly that in order to take down the authority, you have to take down this guy. Right. Which is what happens. So yeah. 
jumping ahead kind of past a, another large steampunk-type battle that, you know, you just kind of see it through Lyra's eyes, Lyra and Will's eyes. So there's no, like, super engaging action. It's just kind of like the two forces are fighting, and on one side we have all these guys, and on the other side we have all these guys, and they're fighting using all of these things, and you're like, okay, wow, this is a big battle. Yeah. So, okay, I am super excited when HBO does this. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. This I is would like to cool. see it. I would like to see it in a little more exciting ones. Yeah. Exactly. Because I think that how this was put to page was fine. Like we, it, it's never been about all these forces assembling in this big battle, like Helm's Deep, or like you know Sanderson does, or like Jordan does with the Wheel of Time. Like that's not what the series is. But if there's one thing HBO can do, it's figure out how to make amazing battle scenes that's right get to the screen yeah some of my top i think my absolute top battle scenes are from game of thrones those scenes are amazing yeah battle of the bastards the long night i mean yeah like those i mean say what you will about the plot which is full of holes but (laughs) man those fights those are awesome yeah so if there's one thing that i'm super excited for from this series it's all the character development the amazing acting all you know all that is true i think in the series but I am excited for this final battle, and I hope that they actually, maybe not like The Hobbit where they made a whole movie out of one battle, but like, I hope that they do at least an episode about this battle. Yeah, yeah, I want to see that for sure. And I guess maybe it depends on how much budget they have. It seems like they're putting a lot of money into the show, so hopefully, you know, they have a budget to do it justice. And let me just mention now, so now that I've finished the books, I'm going to start watching the show, and we'll do a review. We'll do a review of the first season once I finish binging it. Cool. So, okay. So we have this big battle going on and then we have this, uh, this battle between Mrs. Coulter, uh, Lord Azrael and the Metatron. How do you say that? That guy's name? Metatron? Metatron. Yeah. Metatron. Not, not Megatron. Not yeah. Megatron. It's not Megatron. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I wanted to think Megatron often, but no. Okay. Metatron. So what did you think about that? I, I don't know. It wasn't quite there for me, man. Like, they just they just jumped him and fell into the abyss, and that was it. Yeah, pretty much. Here, here's what I saw. I saw these two characters that had been at odds for most of the series, and they finally came together enough and became unified enough to like each fulfill their goal. On one hand, Mrs. Coulter was protecting Lyra, right? Because Metatron was going to get Lyra, uh, I assume. And on the other hand, Lord Azrael wanted to take down the Authority. Or, I mean, at least the church was going to get Lyra, and that's right. the side that he was aligned with, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Mrs. Coulter was doing it to protect Lyra. It made sense, and, but In yeah, a roundabout yeah. way, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they said, you know what, we're just going to take both of our wills, our power, and throw it against this Metatron, God in a blaze of glory. And they never really redeemed themselves, right? Like, I wouldn't call that action an act of redemption, but I think that it was a suitable character arc for him. Yeah, I thought it was a good character arc, and... Once again, I think you've kind of done a better job than me at analyzing the actual character arcs and symbolism. I'm just kind of saying like, oh, I wanted more action. I wanted to be cooler. <laughs> you're not wrong. Like if, you, if you're coming to this battle expecting this amazing, here's what this force is doing while this force is scheming over here and this force is being distracted, like that's not what you got from this. The, yeah, that's basically sums up the battle. I guess one very important thing to mention is the authorities dissolution into nothingness right lyra and will is will with her at the time but at least lyra comes upon him after defeating a random angel or something i'm honestly probably butchering what actually happened here but the important thing is that 
They found the authority. They didn't even know it was the authority. They had no idea what was going on, which kind of speaks to the insignificance of God, which I guess is what Philip Holman is trying to kind of smack you with here. But they uncover the authority from his crystalline palace carriage thing, and he just dissolves into nothingness because he's like a gazillion years old and has no will to live anymore. Yeah. And I think that is what Phil Pullman is saying, the state of God, if he exists, he's powerless to do anything, really. And he sure doesn't care about any of us, is kind of what he's saying. Yeah. So again, like we talked about earlier, like, look, this is obviously something that goes against every Christian value that exists, right? And both of us grew up with Christian backgrounds, so we're probably reading this thinking like, okay, that's interesting, not what I believe, but at the same time, like, that's the ideas of this book. So, you know, let me kind of think about God and, and think about my relationship with him. And is that what I believe? And I guess we're not here on phantology to tell you what to think, but we are here to tell you to maybe think about what you think and make sure that you have solid reasons for believing what you do and you feel comfortable with them. Yeah. And I think that's what this book did for me. You know, it made me reexamine some things and think about some things. And, you know, I don't think it really changed my beliefs, but it made me reexamine them, which I think is always good. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think you should be afraid to do that. And going through life as we get older, that's going to be more and more important. Yeah. So the final battle is over, and we finally meet back up with Mary and the Muletha. And Muletha, Muletha, whatever, the elephant thinks. And we realize the significance of the, this whole plot because Will and Lyra are waking up in what is essentially the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Yep. And at, at this point, the climax is over. And we're spending the last third to fourth of the book just in falling action, which is completely devoted to the symbolism side of the book. And this is my issue, my main issue with the book, in that people say, look, this is like the response to Narnia. And I would say Narnia did a much better job of integrating Aslan and Christian ideas into the plot of the story, where Philip Pullman does it a little bit. But is there not an alternate book that takes these ideas and weaves them into the main action of the plot to the point where it continues to drive the story on. And as I read the exciting plot details, I'm also thinking, oh, that's the interesting symbolism. Now that the exciting plot stuff is over, I'm just kind of like steaming through this end thinking, okay, this is symbolism. Got it, got it, got it. The action's over. I just want to know how it finally wraps up. Yeah. And, and I think that the general thing between us reading it is I enjoyed these symbolism things a little bit more than you did. And so I think I enjoyed those parts a little bit more than you did. There is some interesting symbolism, right? So just kind of tell us, what does it mean here that they're in this Garden of Eden? Because this is obviously a different Eden than Adam and Eve would have experienced. Right. I mean, in my reading of it, this is what the Garden of Eden would be if there was no God, right? Because God has kind of just died. And so they're resetting the, there's kind of a resetting of the earth or of these different worlds, or of and the universe. And evolution. Evolution has entirely narrated the reset compared to Narnia, where you have in the first book, in The uh, the Magician's Nephew, right? That's the first book, where they see the creation and everything, and you see Aslan bringing everything into form. So completely different here. Yeah, yeah. And so you get this new kind of Garden of Eden story where you have Lyra and Will who obviously represent Adam and Eve, you know, and they, and they come together and they, this is where there was like in one of the books, it, there was a part that was edited out, but it was really tame. You know, if you go read what was edited out here. It's, it's this book. So yeah, you're talking about the part where Mary 
starts to tell Lyra her experience for why she is no longer a nun. And right. this is part of the part where I was like, man, this is just smack in the face. Could we have made this a little less like exactly what yeah. you believe, Philip Pullman? So, but Lyra or, or Mary is basically saying like, I'm an atheist and this is why I no longer believe in God. And the reason is, is because I discovered love and I discovered how you like the values of the world and all of the joy that the world has to bring. And she felt like the church was preventing her from having any of those things. Right. And Christians would come back and say like, look, God is the way that you can experience both of those in the same way. And we don't need to get into theology here, but that's at least what, you know, that that's the atheist take on it. Right. That you don't need God if you have love. And if we all loved each other, then we replace God with love. Yeah. And so Lyra is having her sexual awakening, so to speak. And she realizes that she loves Will. And they grow up very quickly here. And then I think this is a lot of symbolic growing up, right? Like, yeah. we're not really seeing this is happening over a course of days. But really, I think we're seeing like years of actual development happen. Yeah, for sure. I think that is interesting that there's there's an apple mentioned, right? And there's the there's the river that's running through this garden. And so you have all these different things from the story of the Garden of Eden, but it can't last, right? It goes on for a little while, and you you find out. Well, let's talk about the developments of what of what Mary found with dust. Yeah. So, and I guess before we talk about dust, let me mention this was one prediction that I got wrong from the from our previous podcast. Is I think I said something like I th- I thought that his dark materials referred to the actual instruments, the titular instruments, the golden compass, the spyglass, and the knife. But no, that's completely wrong. And I don't know why I ever thought that. Because it's obvious, it obviously refers to the dust and, and the specters and those things. Yeah, it wasn't a bad thought. I was fooled by the pictures. I just looked at the pictures. I didn't read the words. <laughs> so that's that's fine, Stephen. It's good to uh, you know humble humble yourself occasionally. Yeah, d- 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 I definitely need that. <laughs> okay, so so what did Mary find out about this about the dust? Yeah, so they discovered that. So she saw that the dust, which was called something else in the Malefa world, was leaving the world and had been for some time and that was causing the decay of the natural order of things the decay of the of how the world should have evolved to the point where the trees were kind of dying and they weren't getting as many seed pods and so the every part of the ecosystem was struggling and the reason for this was because all of these worlds had been started to open this the subtle knife had been opening all these worlds and the dust was streaming between worlds and that's bad we cannot have that because that caused the, the particles to move around and then just like the, the chi, if you will, of the world was all out of whack. Yeah, for sure. And that's what we got Yorick Benison, right? Telling us this knife is doing more than what you think it's doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Call back to that. So somehow he knew something or at least he had some inclination of like, hey, watch out for this. Yeah. And so what do you think? Like, do you think he knew it was like actually destroying the universe, but he trusted Lyra that much? I don't no. think so. Okay. I think he just somehow knew that it was that there was more to it. Okay. I don't think it makes sense to think that he would have known. I think he he for sure had a sense, but we don't have the answer for that. And I think that is the same reason why we find out that you can't uh, stay in another world that's not your own because you have this natural aversion to it, and your body will start to reject it. And I think it's a similar set of rules for dust, right? Right, and this kind of takes us to the very end of the book. Where Will and Lyra cannot be together because they're from different worlds and it's just not going to work. Nope. That was that was kind of heartbreaking. 
Yeah, and now that we've kind of arrived at the end of the story, I'm gonna kind of I'm I'm gonna claim this as my worst of the best. In that, look, Will and Lyra have struggled against the the deck has been stacked against them for the entirety of the series, right? And not necessarily in their relationship, but just in like everything they've been trying to do. They've always been over to been able to overcome it until now, because now. The plot says you can't overcome it. There's nothing to do here. This is a law of the universe. You're going to have to be separated. And I don't know. I felt like there sh- there could have been some way, like f- one final way where they were able to, you know, kind of thumb their nose at the universe and say, eh, no, we, we've tricked you. We figured out how to, you know, we're, we're the only ones clever enough to do this and they stay together. That's what I would have liked to see. Yeah, you're not wrong. I was like, my heart kind of broke for them in that moment. And I think just because everything else was a happy ending in a lot of ways, that there had to be some sort of bittersweet, you know, ending happening. Yeah. Did you know there's a bench at Oxford that has their names carved in it? Oh, really? Where they each go sit on their right world? Yeah, so that was part of it. Like, once a year, right, they were going to go sit on the bench at the same time. Yeah. And Wikipedia tells me that that is the case. There's a picture. Dang, if I'm ever in Oxford, I want to go sit on that bench. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a deep cut there. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that that was a good ending. It made my heart weep a little bit. I kind of want to read the books after to see if they can overcome that or what what's going to come from this. Actually, those are prequel books. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, Lyra is an infant. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. The book of the book of dust. The first book has like a French name, if I'm not mistaken. It's definitely not an English name. Probably has some significance that is smarter than I can come up with. But uh, yeah, that that's the first book. And the second book came out in 2019. So I'm guessing the third book is probably on its way soon. Well, I'll, I'll jump into my worst of the best. And this is going back to the battle with Menatron and Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael. I mean, we already kind of talked about it. But if these are if this is the death of like our two main antagonists throughout the series... I kind of wanted more from it to spend a little bit more time not reveling in it, but like, yeah, feeling the implications from it. Lyra should see it happen, right? And do like a no type experience have, or something. Have some, at least have some sort of emotion. Either try and prevent it, or if you want to go dark, try and help it happen so that she can get these de- demons out. Of, not right. demons, that's a bad word for this in this book, <laughs> but like, you know, yeah. like something. Have some sort of emotional character reaction from Lyra to this event instead she i assume finds out it happens right <laughs> honestly i don't even know if she does she i, I mean, can't remember i don't know like if I think, she does it's it, one of the angels might tell her in kind of the falling action wrapping up bit yeah so that was definitely my here's this amazing all these plot things coming together and i think i do like how it happened overall but have lyra have some sort of reaction to it that's my thoughts on it yeah, thanks, Josh. So that's going to wrap us for the Ember Spyglass and wrap our His Dark Materials book series review, at least. We are going to do another TV series season one review once I get through that. And hopefully this video turns out good and you guys are able to enjoy this on our YouTube channel. Just uh, just search for Phantology or Phantology Books on YouTube and it'll, it'll pop right up. You can see our beautiful faces. You can see my cool like trifoil virtual background. My coreless white background yeah you need a green screen or something or or like a nice bookshelf behind you i know i know there's not much i can do about that i'm making do with what i got steven that's fine that's fine 
Um, anyway, thank you, Josh, and thank you, listeners. If you like our content, check us out at Phantology Books. Uh, you can find our website and chat with us on Discord. Tell us everything we're getting wrong. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, whatever. And tell us what series you'd like for us to cover in the future. And until next time, see you guys later. See ya.